You're listening to The Perth Property Show, Australia's only weekly property podcast by West Australian experts for West Australian listeners. Catch your latest episode every Monday at 7am. Good morning, everyone. Welcome to The Perth Property Show. My name's Trent Fleskins, your host as always. This week, we are chatting with Kerry Berman, the Director of Berman Finance Solutions. She's also the Chair of the MFAA. Kerry, thanks for coming on, mate. Thank you for having me. I thought it would be a good opportunity to have a conversation diving deeper into the world of mortgage broking, Mm -hmm. the occupation of it, how the Haynes Royal Commission has affected the industry of mortgage broking, banking and its clients, obviously, over the last few years, where things are going with it, whether there's any connection in the future with how the financial planning industry has been treated as well, and just your general views on mortgage broking as a service. Given you're the chair, I think you're going to have really cool insights for us. Very happy to have a chat. It's certainly been an interesting few years hasn't it since the Royal Commission we certainly got thrown under the bus it was all meant to be about banking and then suddenly mortgage brokers became the focus exactly right and I think at the end of the day it was the David Goliath battle of the MFAA FBAA obviously another industry advocate body there too versus the big four in the banks that put us in that situation but also the fact that we were fighting back through advocacy that actually kept us from possible annihilation as well so we'll talk about that too I think it's a really cool space first I wanted to have a quick chat about your pathway to being where you are today at the top of the pile in the mortgage broking industry. Give some young people out there someone to look up to in that space. 27 years in the finance space, 18 years in mortgage broking is Mm -hmm. is quite a career, Kerry. I started as probably a lot of the listeners might have in that I was working for a bank. Which one? Um, the big red W. Ah, uh, yes. <laughs> uh, I was there for 10 years. I guess it just got to a point where mortgage broking had obviously started whilst I was in those early days of banking. And a lot of my colleagues had left and were niggling me saying, come on, Kerry, you should come and do this too. And it was such an eye opener. I remember when I first left the bank and went into mortgage broking and suddenly this light bulb of, oh my God, you can do this or you can do that. Because when you're Working for one institution, you do become very institutionalised and you tend to think that they are the best. Whatever they will do can be done and whatever they won't do can't be done anywhere, right? Exactly. I remember feeling the same thing about my consulting career back in my early 20s. And then suddenly you're faced with this massive panel of lenders that can do things that you never dreamed were possible. The enlightenment that came with being able to actually help people, genuinely help people and give them real solutions to a whole range of problems and educating people along the way as well, I think is something that I'm really passionate about. It's an issue that clients, customers still face today. A lot of people where we can be very loyal to our bank. I remember I was a CBA client, had the Dolomites account. I remember in... I think we were institutionalized at school. We were given Dolomite accounts, Such right? a great marketing strategy. Really cool. Absolutely. So my first loan was with CBA. They were the first people I spoke to. And my understanding at the time would have been that if they can't do it, no one can do it. And I still think there is a very high percentage of people these days who, if they don't have a relationship with a broker, the answer that your bank gives you is the only answer available. And it's just not the case, is it? No, and I think consumers have become more and more aware. Now mortgage brokers are writing just over 70% of all mortgages in the country. So clearly consumers are being educated in terms of the value proposition of a broker and less and less are going direct to bank. That's rising massively. Only a few years ago, that was less than 50%, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah. So it's really significantly increased, funnily enough, since the Royal Commission. Mm. You know, I remember at the time thinking, oh my God, we're thrown under the bus. What's this going to mean for us? And then really within a pretty short period of time, I thought, you know what? 
He's done us a favour. Is it one of those cases of all publicity is good publicity? Yeah. MFAA was really involved in that Don't Kill the Competition campaign that yep. they started to really highlight to consumers that, hang on a second, don't throw us under the bus here. We're the ones that are keeping the banks honest. We're the ones that are keeping competition alive in the industry and making sure that there's not massive profit gouging by the bank and that we're keeping them honest in terms of the interest rates that they're offering to customers. Well, it negates the ability for these banks, especially the big four, to run a cartel model where they're all not talking to each other but clearly someone's yeah. talking to someone and they're all just edging up those margins ever so slightly every month until they're making the super profits that they can make if they aren't kept to account and the way I think the industry does that these days is through broking and through the 40 non-bank lenders I'd say that are out there they're probably yeah, exactly. more and we still see it now don't we those out of cycle interest rate rises that the banks largely the major banks are doing which affects primarily their back book. They have these fantastic offers for the new clients that want to come in the front door and then suddenly the back book ends up being neglected and the broker has a huge part to play in that. If you're really doing things well in the industry and, and you're running your business effectively, you're really looking after your back book and, and protecting clients. your trail, looking after your existing clients. Do you reckon there's a day in the future where someone, Parliament, will legislate that banks must provide the same rate to all of their clients for the same product, that their new clients can't get a better rate than old clients? It would be great. Don't know that I'm going to see that happen in, in my time in the industry. Great if it did, but I think we're a pretty long way off that. Talking about your time in the industry, can you give us a little bit of background, anecdotal stories, I guess, about what it was like being a broker 18 years ago? How is it different mm. to what it's like today? I think a lot of people might underestimate just how much work being a broker is today especially compared to what it might have been back in the early 2000s? It's certainly evolved massively. And again, particularly in the last few years in terms of the compliance that's expected of us today than what it was 17, 18 years ago when I started. Was there any real um, compliance? Wasn't it more of an introducer oh, model? It was, but there was some compliance to a level. Back then in WA, we were the only state that was licensed. So you had to have a finance broking license, which was DOSEP, Department of Employment, Consumer Employment. It was certainly there, particularly in WA, but more broadly around the country, there was a lot less legislation or scrutiny in place. So I think WA has always done it pretty well in comparison to some of the other states. You wouldn't but have had the online CRMs that you have these no, days with all the choice in one, yeah, one software, Yeah, we right? still faxed applications, yeah. you know, and, and we, you, you know, you may even have some listeners, I don't know, some of the guys who've been around in the industry for a long time who still today really struggle with the way technology has changed and still wish that they could go back to that paper form filling in send it off on a fax to the assessor or Everything the banker that you're dealing with. Everything was handwritten, wasn't it? Everything was handwritten. So it's changed hugely. But then what hasn't changed in the last 17 or 18 years, particularly anything that is in the technology space, there's been so much change and, and it will continue to change and continue to evolve. What has changed as well is the choice. And how many banks or lenders were you choosing between in the early 2000s? Yeah. And now you've got not just institutions that are banks or credit unions, you've got your fintechs and all of these other new I players that have come into them, the space. Frank, Carrie, yeah. <laughs> There's some that I look at on that list and, go, and they come, new one pops up every week on the CRM these days and I think, who the hell are they? Yeah. What do they offer? Yeah, definitely. Can I trust them, even as a broker? I think we all probably get to the point where we have a certain panel that we tend to stick to our favourites. I think that's pretty normal. Obviously, the software that we have can give us a comparison against all of them. But as a broker, you're always going to gravitate 
to a certain number of lenders that you know you have a good relationship with Mm. the bank, you have a good relationship with the BDMs or the RMs, the credit assessors. You want to provide your client with a really smooth, efficient service. You're probably going to stick to the ones that you know will provide that to you rather than go and try something completely new and then potentially have the wheels fall off. That's right. And I think that's where that level of advocacy, fiduciary responsibility that us as brokers have for our clients is when they give us their information and they're looking for a certain loan, they're rely on us to actually get that approval for them. So taking risk on another lender, you really have to have built that relationship with a new BDM who can demonstrate exactly what that product is and who those clients are and some confidence that if you put your precious client towards that bank, they'll actually get approved and the rate they said, they're not going to get screwed over, their services will be good. In comparison to, look, we've got a great relationship with these 10 lenders that always look after our clients. We know nearly 100% they will get looked after and approved in the time required. And that's the thing. There has been over the years a number of times where I've been introduced to a new lender and thought okay I'll give them a go and unfortunately sometimes it's been a pretty disappointing experience so you you don't tend to go back for a second bite of the cherry. Nevertheless there are more and more available and and the choice is the most important thing because what seems to be happening is those non-bank lenders do seem to keep the banks and a larger non-bank lenders to account and keep them honest at least with the rates they're offering right? Yeah, definitely. Well, I guess the reality is, you know, if you're an institution that doesn't have significant cost, we have to understand that if people want to go to a major bank, they are going to pay a bit of a premium for that because the infrastructure, the branch networks, that sort of thing is is an extra cost to them compared to someone who doesn't have that kind of service proposition, their costs are lower. So you would expect their rates to be marginally lower, but it certainly does help to keep competition. And I think that's why, although the Royal Commission was a bit scary at first. I, I actually think in a way it's it's been quite positive for our industry. It gets us to self-reflect as well. As the chair of the MFAA, what's your role in that space? How do you guys on that board actually influence and assist all of us members? Yeah, sure. Any member that's a member of the MFAA, if they meet the certain criteria that the MFAA asks of them, they can put their hand up to be elected as a board member. So obviously those elections aren't held every year. They're held whenever a director retires and, and we have a set when you get voted on to the MFAA, you have a term of three years and then you can sit for a second term if you wish. So it's been a really interesting experience. I've thoroughly enjoyed it. I must say, as a member of the MFAA, I was probably a bit oblivious, I think. You kind of just pay your membership fees and don't think too much about what are they actually doing for us. Oh, that's most associations, isn't it? You yeah, go, oh, here I think you go, it's 500 just, bucks or yeah, whatever it is, what am I getting for it? You see it as a necessary evil, so to speak, yep. I guess. But the one thing I can absolutely say, having been involved at the board level, is that the work that the team at the MFAA does for the industry is really extraordinary. They are such a dedicated, passionate, small team of experts. So we've got policy and legal. Naveen is constantly working on what submissions to put into government, etc., in terms of advocating for the industry to get some of the outcomes that we'd like to have. You've got our education and marketing team who are always trying to make sure that they're putting the broker front of mind, giving us the tools to be able to use to get front of mind with our clients, giving us the education that we want in terms of keeping us up to date with regulatory change and look what we've had. We've had bid recently, so oh, it's yeah. keeping 
keeping on top of all of that stuff. Uh, the team do a really awesome job and being on the board has just been really enlightening. There's eight of us on the board. Five of us are elected directors and three are appointed directors. Those three directors are appointed for a specific expertise that they bring to the board. And collectively, I guess our role is to just help form a strategy for the MFAA and to guide the way our industry is headed, I guess. What are you guys focusing on at the moment? Obviously, there was a lot of time and I guess money spent with the Haynes Royal Commission going through and and that was a scary time for I think a lot of brokers and people in the industry. That dust has seemed to settle now. What are you focusing on these days? continuing the advocacy piece. I don't think even when there's no sort of real critical things going on that you can take your foot off the pedal with that sort of thing. And and the MFAA has always been very active in that space. And also education, I think. Looking forward as an industry, I think we just need to remember that continual improvement is something that we should all be aiming for. It's very easy to kind of sit in the past and just go, well, it's a cert for or it's a diploma. But what are we doing to continually improve ourselves, keep that professional standard and to eventually be seen as a profession, the same as accountants and lawyers and financial planners are. Well, let's segue into that. How many brokers sit under the MFAA? Oh, if I remember this correctly, it's well over 14,773-ish, I think is the last number I, I recall. Yeah, and the reason I ask is because I think there would be an assumption that of those 14,700 and something that are in the industry, there's probably a percentage there that are the weekend warriors, second job guys who are really not that professional in the way they get about things. But there's a very low barrier to entry. There can be a really good income if you get enough work. But in the same sense that the financial planning industry had the broom swept through it, is there a fear or a movement or a preference at some point in time for the mortgage broking space to be tightened up a little bit in terms of its professionalism and standards. And obviously, things have been moving in the compliance and best interest duty space for a while now. That would probably automatically sweep some people out because it's just getting harder and harder to be a broker like a lot of professions. But do you think it's going to get to a point where that 14,000 might turn to 8,000 of the guys who are actually set up to do the right thing and provide the best service? Is that a preference or not? We believe that all of our members have the best intent and I'm sure that is the case. We at the MFAA do have the higher minimum standard in terms of the diploma compared to FBAA who have the Cert 4. And I'm sure there are a lot of FBAA members who actually also have a diploma. I do think that in time, it's just, again, about continual improvement and looking forward as to what is next. Is the diploma enough? What would some other form of education or continuing professional development look like? But I think we just all need to be on that path of continuing to learn, continually improvement exactly what that looks like that's for the team to work on if we think about what that fraternity looks like these days the way that we're remunerated as brokers upfront commission trial commission there's obviously issues such as clawbacks there's cashbacks in the industry for banks to clients a lot of things going on here that were addressed in the haynes review what are your thoughts on the way the dust is settled there there was a push there for a moment that i thought could have killed the industry in direct fees being paid for brokers by clients which I think would have absolutely decimated the demand for brokers in the first place, given that customers aren't paying banks fees, for example. Mm. The way that things have ended up since that review was finished, do you think it's been a positive outcome? Do you think there's room for improvement still in the way that brokers are remunerated? Clearly, there's been a positive spin from the Royal Haynes Commission, or we wouldn't end up with writing 70% of loans and mortgages across the country. So I think 
Although at the time, as I said earlier, there was a bit of fear around that time and the MFAA came out very strongly with the Don't Kill the Competition campaign. And that really shone a light on the industry in a really positive way. And and consumers have realised that using a broker does provide them choice. And why would you go direct to a bank? I mean, I would ask anybody that question. And I used to work at a bank. Why would you, as a consumer, go direct to a bank to get one outcome one out when of 40 or something you yeah. can go to a broker and have a whole gamut of solutions presented to you that are most likely going to be better than the one you would have got if you'd just walked directly into your own bank and sometimes people can walk directly into their own bank and get told no mm. and actually not realize that somebody else might actually say yes to exactly the same thing in terms of remuneration the reality is the commission structure we have has, has been around for a long time although obviously it's had some changes over the years. It's evolved in the way that trail is paid versus upfront, isn't it? How did it used to be? Well, initially it was primarily just upfront commission. And then when trail was introduced, it was kind of put there as a, an extension of the upfront. You got part of it now and you got part of it later, so to speak. And that was to try and stop brokers moving clients around every year for yeah. more upfront, wasn't it? Look, we've all heard the term churn, I guess, in the industry. And obviously, there were some brokers back then who probably did do that a little too regularly. And the light was shone on the industry for that reason. I certainly think there's a hell of a lot less of that going on today. And and part of that probably is because of the way we're remunerated. I also do think that generally brokers try really hard to maintain the client at the lender that they are already with, even past the two-year clawback period. Because the reality is, if that's what's in the client's best interest to stay at the lender they're with, and you can navigate and negotiate a really good deal for them there and it's not worth them moving elsewhere, why would you put yourself and the customer through that entire process when there's actually no real benefit at the end of it? Well, I think there's a lot of brokers out there that would do that simply for the upfront commission. They'll keep the client and the trail will roll on again, but they'll get another sugar hit of the upfront commission. That is obviously still incentivizing brokers to churn every two to three years, I think, once they're out of that clawback. Whilst I do agree with you that most brokers wouldn't be incentivized to do that, to be frank, a lot of clients are. You get past a two-year fixed rate, you're a couple of years in, you don't feel like you're getting the love from the bank that you think, you'll ask your broker, hey, can we get that cash back? And Mm. uh, that segues us into that next point. Cashbacks have been an interesting introduction in contemporary times in the last couple of years. It was one or two banks that had the idea and then moved to half the industry throwing money around. That is something that clients, I think, have been chasing more so than brokers. Look, I think, and that was some of the conversations that were had in the industry was the bank's years ago we're looking at the brokers and saying that our behavior was creating churn and now we can sort of shine the light or turn the mirror back on them and say well if you're going to be offering cashbacks of two three four thousand dollars what do you think that's creating because you're always going to have those consumers who will see if there's profit to be made in a cashback and there is at four thousand bucks exactly you know like if it costs you a thousand or twelve hundred dollars to move lenders but the lender's going to give you four grand well that's that's a that's a holiday to bali right so why wouldn't you do it um um, but the last couple of months has been interesting because there's been a lot of lenders actually pull back out of that space. And you'd have to question for the longevity to keep that going, what their profit margins would be. And obviously, it's really detrimental to the back book. It's a race to the bottom and then they've got to throw these really good offers out to attract business. So what happens to the existing loyal clients that have stayed there for a long time? If they don't have a broker who's really engaged in looking after their back book and making sure that that rate is really sharp all the time, and, and that takes a lot of time. 
for brokers to actually invest that time in their clients and their back book, but it's so worthwhile. And it's also a reason why I think I've held, and this is just a, a personal belief of mine, that days of solo brokers could potentially come to an end because it's a huge amount of compliance that we have to deal with. You've got the cybersecurity issues that are becoming more and more of a concern. Managing your back book as the longer you're in, in the industry and the bigger your book becomes, then the more time is required for you to actually spend really truly looking after those clients and mm. there reaches a point where doing it all on your own is just becoming extremely difficult and we also have to look at health and well-being mental health is that really a good position for someone to be in to be isolated on their own as a solo broker never able to really step out of the business take a holiday a proper break in the long term it'll get to the point where perhaps some of those solo brokers come together and, and work as a team and be able to cover each other better and support each other. As it becomes more and more of a professional industry, more and more asked of brokers, especially through the paperwork side, there will just be that requirement to build out teams of admin and client support staff in addition to that frontline broker who's managing relationships and seeking new clients and continually having those touch points with the banks. And it also enables you to grow your business, to stay as an individual. And when I started broking, I was an individual. I was mother to a young daughter in kindy and hated dropping her at daycare and picking her up from daycare and the childcare person quite happily telling me that my daughter cried all the way from from kindy to daycare in the daycare pickup bus and things like that and that was really difficult and then but being a solo broker in those early days suited me because I had a young daughter and I didn't want to be overwhelmed with workload and I was happy to just work part-time for a period of time but you can only do that for a period of time once you start to build a loyal client base who are referring to you and and your business grows, then you're going to reach a limit at some point as to how much you can achieve as one person. There's only so much paperwork you can be spending your day on. And honestly, within the first 12 months of me putting on my first admin support person, I almost doubled my business in that year purely because... I wasn't getting bogged down in all the administrative stuff. I was actually having more conversations, sitting in front of more clients and doing the part of the job that I actually really love. I don't like data entry. Mm. It's not really my thing. I'm not particularly tech savvy, although I've learned to deal with it over the years because we've had to. But I much prefer to be sitting in front of a client, having a conversation and helping them achieve some of their financial goals than sitting there doing data entry. And it's enabled me the ability to grow and be able to do that a lot better. Clawbacks. I wanted to talk to you about that not only to discuss the efficacy of them, but also build a bit of awareness within the industry of clients, Mm. of mum and dads that may not actually be aware of what a clawback is and how it affects your broker. Whoever that broker is, I think it's important for everyone to know that it is a reality of a broker's life, that it's probably the only job in the world that I've seen where you can do the work for a client, provide a successful outcome, and then six 12 months later, 18 months later, have your income taken off you because maybe your client decided to sell or refinance to a different bank on their own back and then suddenly you're left holding the baby. No one in the industry likes clawbacks. I'm fortunate enough that it doesn't happen very often and I've got some particular processes in my business that I've installed to try and limit that happening and and I'd be happy to share a couple of those. But I think we have to also understand that if we want to be paid for the work we do, that's a fee-for-service model. 
If we want to be paid for the value that we introduce, that's a commission model. So I just think we need to be a little bit careful about if we have this idea in our head that clawbacks are going to be completely abolished, then effectively what we're saying is we're looking at a new remuneration structure. And I I don't really think anybody really wants that to happen. If we went to a fee-for-service model, that's going to completely change the industry and, and move it more towards the financial planning industry. And potentially then it will make getting advice from someone like us not affordable for some people. I would have thought there'd be a model there where it's still a commission base. It's still paid for via the bank, I guess. Mm. But at the same time, there's no clawback. I don't think removing clawbacks is in lockstep with having to be paid a flat fee of $2,500 per loan. I think you can get paid in the same way we get paid right now, but simply have a reflection in the industry. And this might add a slight amount of margin to all the loans. I'm not sure, 0.1% to all Mm. loans, because there will be some cost to the banks and they'll pass that on. But I can't see how in any other space you could rationally, pragmatically sit there and say it's fair for a broker to have done their work, provided the solution to a client, provided the source to the, the solution to the bank as well, work obviously in introduction service, you get paid by the bank for that obviously, mm. to then have the client get divorced six months later, not your fault, not the bank's fault, and then obviously sell the home. And the only person who seems to lose out of that is the broker. And I take your point. Like I've said, I'm a broker. It's not something I enjoy when it happens on the rare occasion either. I think we have to put it into perspective. If most brokers out there actually looked at the volume of clawbacks that they get, they're a pretty low percentage. Yeah, it might be one so, you know. Exactly. So I think, you know, we have to have a balanced view about it and look at it as a business owner. There's always going to be certain things that are going to happen in any business that might potentially cause you to suffer a small loss at some point. You know, you could be in a business where you where you sell a product and you've got a creditor that owes you money and that account never gets paid. So there's always losses in business, I guess. I think we could definitely move towards a fairer model of clawback so that it's more of a stepped model, which some institutions have moved towards already. of it. Yeah, so that it's not as significant a hit on people when it happens. But I don't have the crystal ball to look into the future to tell whether that's ever going to happen. There have to be a lot of lobbying and advocacy to a member of parliament. I think it's a long way off. As brokers, there's lots of things we can do. I mean, I know a lot of brokers out there use CoreLogic as an example, and and CoreLogic has a a thing in it called the watch list. So if you load every single one of your clients' property addresses into CoreLogic and have it on the watch list, the minute something happens with that property, whether it be listed for rent, whether it be listed for sale, it's going to send you a message to say your client's property has just gone up for rent or your client's property has just gone on the market. And it gives you then the ability to have that conversation with your client to reach out to them, call them up and say, hey, what's happening? I noticed you've put your property on the market or I noticed it's up for rent. Is there anything I can help you with? Talk to me about what's going on. Because the chances are if they're selling, they're going to be buying something else, right? Or if they're renting it out, they've got to live somewhere else. So I think there's lots of tools and ways that we as business owners can manage that more effectively in our business. Mm. Look, it's a sour taste in my mouth. I've had a couple of those over the last year where we've gone and gotten a loan for a client and they've decided two months later to move it on because they made a quick profit and you're sitting there thinking, geez, that was nice for you. I know, I know. And look- I'm happy for you. Yeah. No, nobody likes it when it happens, but I do think we need to put it into perspective. And, and honestly, I would probably ask brokers out there who are suffering a lot of clawbacks to just maybe have a look at 
why that might be happening for them and mm. reach out to another respected broker in the industry and, and ask them to have a conversation around how they manage that in their business and what process could they perhaps put in place to see that that's not happening as frequently and dig a little bit deeper, I think, as to why it might be happening for them. Kerry Berman, it's been a fantastic chat. I really appreciate your time today. It's lovely to have the chair of the MFAA in the studio and I look forward to having a chat with you again in the future. Thanks for having me, Trent. It's been great. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Perth Property Show. If you've only just joined the conversation, you can catch up by heading over to our website, perthpropertyshow.com.au, subscribing to the podcast or joining our Facebook page. Don't forget to tune in next Monday at 7am for more expert insights, local analysis and suburb spotlights. Happy hunting!